Hi, my name is George Thomas, and I'm one of the junior doctors on the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh's Trainees and Members Committee. I'm here with Dr. Mike Wilkinson. He's an associate specialist in geriatrics and an SAS tutor for Gateshead NHS Foundation Trust. He's also the associate sub-dean at the Health Education of the Northeast of England and North Cumbria for SAS doctors and dentists. Mike also sits on the Trainees and Members Committee at the college as the SAS rep. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi, George. Um, thank you for that um, warm introduction. So, Mike, a lot of people on social media, and uh, you must have heard this as well uh, from other junior doctors are asking, what actually is the SAS doctor? So I'll try and put this as brief as possible. So an SAS doctor encompasses a number of different titles They include specialty doctor, associate specialist, staff grade, and there's also the new specialist grade that um, was approved um, earlier this year in 2021. So they are the the titles that SAS stands for. But I suppose more broadly, what we're talking about is a very diverse group of doctors and dentists uh, that make up around about 20% of the permanent medical workforce for the NHS. They, as I say, are very diverse, be that within specialty. There are probably, I don't think there are any specialties that a SAS doctor or dentist couldn't be part of. Um, But we're also very culturally diverse and diverse as to where they may have achieved their primary medical qualification and also where they have obtained previous medical experience and the role of SAS doctors is, is also very varied depending on where the SAS doctor works, the specialty they work in, the team that they work in. So in a nutshell, that is that is what a SAS doctor is. Wow, it's quite different from, I guess, even my own presumption of what a SAS doctor stands for. It's very diverse, as you said. It sounds like they've got various roles and responsibility and not one, you know, single uh, role or responsibility. Could you uh, elaborate more on what the roles and responsibilities of SAS doctors are? Yes, of course. I think essentially there aren't many kind of rules and responsibilities that a SAS doctor couldn't achieve. A lot of it's mm-hmm. all down to the opportunities that are available. You know, SAS doctors bring a, a varied wealth of experience and perform many duties. A lot of SAS doctors actually perform in duties at a very similar level to that of their consultant colleagues. And other than their their title can be difficult to distinguish, at least to the lay person. You know, the the rules, you know, that many of us have, you know, I'll just, you know, list a few, could be like an educational or a clinical supervisor, be involved with teaching, be involved with academic and research. You know, as I say, there aren't many areas that a SAS doctor can't be involved in. The challenge is, is that um, uh, there is still this misconception and perception of of some areas that will that really feel that a, a SAS doctor is simply there to provide a service. And I would argue that, you know, we're all there to provide a service for our patients, but purely providing a clinical service you know, that, that is not the role of a, of a SAS doctor. It is part of lots of things that we can be involved with. I see. Yeah, I, I've heard of a similar misconception as well. Just following up on that, 
with regards to the responsibility of SARS doctors. Do SARS doctors um, manage their own clinics, their own wards, or their own lists? Let's say they do procedures like bronchoscopies or gastroscopies. Mm-hmm. Right. So where I'm going with this is, do they need, uh, for example, consultant supervision like a registrar, or are they independent operators without a consultant overseeing them? So in short, the answer to that is both. And it very much depends on the experience and the aspirations of the SAS doctor and also the support that they get within the team. So some SAS doctors will have less experience and not be fully independent and will require um, supervision, I suppose similar to that of a trainee. So they, they would be what I would consider a more trainee like SAS doctor. But then there's also what I would consider as being a more consultant like SAS doctor who, you know, as you just said, may run their own clinics, um, may run their own theatre lists um, and pretty much be independent and almost or at the same level of their consultant peers, except for the fact that they, they are not on the specialist register or have not achieved their um, CSER qualification which allows them to be on the specialist register so that might be the only real real difference is whether they're on the specialist register or not they might well be performing everything else um, similar to that of a consultant but it kind of goes back to what I said before we are very diverse and varied and it's a spectrum of experience um, and it's difficult to kind of generalize um, one SAS doctor may be at one end of the spectrum and another at the other and that might be the same with two SAS doctors even within the same team at the same trust so it, yeah it, it very much depends on the experience um, of the individual. Wow that's interesting so based on that are there any particular prerequisites for one to achieve in order to become a SAS doctor like do we need professional exams? Um, no not necessarily I mean the, the main prerequisites are that of having at least four years of clinical experience two of the two years post graduation so post qualification and two years within the relevant specialty you don't have to have any particular exams though many SAS doctors do go on to you know obtain the relevant exams within that specialty so no, they're the main kind of prerequisites. So as you'll see, that that kind of opens up the floor for quite a broad, you know, starting point, I suppose, for, for SAS doctors. The only thing I'd say about that is that actually, although four years is the kind of the minimum, the vast majority of SAS doctors have, you know, a far greater wealth of experience than that. And, you know, because they are a permanent member of staff, you know, that level of experience and seniority will increase and increase as the years go on. And as the years go on, I, I suspect they will also have to maintain their skills and competencies as part of their professional development. What do they need to do in order to achieve that? Um, so, yeah, so in terms of kind of keeping skills up to date, it's very similar to, to that of a consultant, um, a yearly appraisal, you know, demonstrating you know, all of the domains within uh, within the, the GMC framework and the any relevant experience and skills that need to be maintained as part of working within that specialty, which, of course, will be slightly different from one specialty to the next. But that's pretty much the minimum of, of what is expected in terms of, you know, maintaining practice. 
I see. And uh, the person that does the appraisal, so like consultants, they get a consultant peer to do it. Is that the same with SARS doctors? Do they get a peer to do it as well or is, is it somebody else? So, yeah, I imagine that might vary from place to place, but essentially um, all trusts will have an appraisal lead um, and a set appraisal framework. And SAS doctors would fit into that just as their consultants, colleagues uh, would do. So it's not really any any different and, and they can follow the same you know, way of uploading evidence to their appraisal, be that um, whether it is um, electronic. Most trusts have their own like platform for, for demonstrating appraisal and, you know, SAS doctors would fit into that the same. So based on what you just told me, Mike, um, why would somebody want to be a SAS doctor? And if they do want to be a SAS doctor, how could they go about it? Um, yeah, good question. I think why someone would want to be a SAS doctor is very unique to the individual. There are lots of uh, what I would say about that is there are um, some common themes, let's say, as to um, mm-hmm. why one might think a SAS career is for them. For some, it's simply about work-life balance and flexibility, which isn't always um, something that can be offered from other types of training program. It might be for family reasons or caring mm. reasons. It might be that somebody simply just wants a stability within a team rather than move around from hospital to hospital every six to 12 months. Perhaps a break from training or to consider other career options. Many SAS doctors do think about going back into training at a later stage or simply that actually a training programme just isn't for them and mm-hmm. they have a passion for a certain specialty and want to stay within that specialty and providing, you know, great clinical care for their patients to work within a set team and kind of develop their own kind of portfolio career and develop at their own pace. So there's lots and lots of different reasons. I mean, my my particular reason why I stepped out of training was was a combination, really. For one, I found training quite difficult after I suffered a significant bereavement within Mm. um, one of my family members Mm. and I really struggled to get back onto the training ladder Um, Mm. although I I did persevere for a couple of years as a as a registrar I I just found I just didn't feel settled um, within the training program and I particularly became unsettled at times with moving from one hospital to another and getting to know a brand new team, doing nights, weekends, Mm. um, lots of different shifts. And I just really struggled with it. And I knew my passion was within geriatrics, but um, I found the pressures within training were just not something that, you know, were right for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I just happened to, uh, meet some colleagues from a from a trust that I'd worked at, which is where I am now, who basically said, you know, we'd love to have you back. Um, we can create a job for you, um, and um, would you would you take it if we offered it? And I was like, yes, please do. Um, so so that was my reason, and I have never looked back. Uh, I love the job that I do. So yeah. Going back to your question, I think it very much depends on the individual why you why they would choose to think about a SAS career. How you go about doing it 
Again, there isn't any straightforward answer to that because unlike training programs, there aren't any kind of set numbers. There aren't any specific jobs out there necessarily all of the time. They might get advertised on kind of NHS jobs from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I think what many what many SAS doctors find is that these are the kind of jobs that are created once a um, a trust or a team or department becomes familiar with that person. You know, they make uh, the job on service need and so that that particular person or somebody out there could slot into being a permanent member within their team at a senior level, which obviously is, is, is something that can't always be provided from the training programme. So, yeah, some of it is about, is there a service need within a department? Is the right person out there for the job? They might already have somebody in mind and then creating that job so that, um, you know, they can continue to provide the level of service and care that um, they'd like to within that team. Does that answer your question? (laughs) No, it it does. And I think one thing, I've seen this recently on social media as well. You have doctors either coming out of, foundation program or even the old CMT um, training program and they want to be SAS doctors and they're not sure who to ask for advice so they go on social media is there anywhere in particular that they can get information from with understanding the process and who to go to and how to approach people about this yeah so I would suggest if they have in mind a particular department or particular team then approaching the clinical lead Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, expressing an interest in that way. Obviously, creating a job has its, you know, might need a business case and have um, financial implications on the departmental budget. So it'll need to be costed out. So that's one way of doing it. Generically, um, most trusts have SAS tutors. Um, I'm, a, I'm the SAS tutor where I work. Um, mm-hmm. They are helpful people to get in touch with, to even just discuss career options you know, it might not necessarily be that they can influence the creation of a job, but just getting to know, you know, who the who the relevant people are within the trust and how, you know, explore kind of what a SAS career is like in more detail. Regionally, most regions will have an associate dean for SAS doctors and or dentists. Uh, so, you know, I would look at your um, Health Education England uh, regional website to find out who that might be because they might also be, you know, useful to to kind of help point you in the right direction. And yes, social media um, has its benefits as well, putting you in touch with, you know, senior colleagues in different trusts. So I suppose unlike training, it's different how you get into the the career as a SAS SAS doctor. And and many people, if you asked, you know, if you asked 100 SAS doctors, will give you a slightly different answer to this question. I'll be honest. I mean, I remember it's years ago now, but I remember while I was in the foundation program, when they gave you the careers option, like which specialty you approach, it you mm-hmm. do, for example, and how you approach it, they never mentioned staff uh, in any form. They just talked about the training pathway, and you had it was indoctrinated in you that there was only one way forward in uh, postgraduate medical education. So. Yeah, no, no, this is this is helpful. I didn't even realize that every trust would have a SAS tutor. Mm-hmm. I need to find out who my SAS tutor is now. <laughs> uh, any additional things with regards to SAS doctors do, do, would you like to highlight 
I suppose I would just kind of comment on what you just said. I think I think you're very right that uh, medical careers often focus a lot on training and becoming a consultant, but forget that that's not for everybody. And there is, I think, there's an inherent bias within the system that mm. pushes people towards training. And and I'm not I'm not anti-training. Okay, I think that training is great. And if if you really want to be a consultant, I'll be very honest that the the training pathway is the simplest way of doing so. Caesar is there and has its advantages, but the most straightforward way is is definitely the training route. But yes, I agree that SAS careers isn't covered very much, and I only became aware of what a specialty doctor was from being offered the post myself when I was not so sure that I wanted to continue with training. I'd never really appreciated what a SAS doctor was until that point although I'd maybe come across the odd one here and there so I think that there is a lot to be done about raising the profile of SAS and hopefully this podcast is one way of doing so because you know we should be promoting all of the diverse areas of kind of a career within you know a medical career you know be that training be that SAS um, you know be that whatever so that the individual can make their own mind up to what works for them. Going back to what I said earlier, mm-hmm. um, kind of another way of, of becoming a SAS is a lot of people, as you've said before, will step out of training or kind of have a gap, particularly after foundation, and become what we would call a locally employed doctor. And that, you know, there's lots of different terms. Some are called trust grades, clinical fellows, you know, and, and other titles that sound very similar to that. So one of the ways that some locally employed doctors find themselves as subsequent SAS doctors is by being a locally employed doctor for a period of time um, Mm. within a specialty. And then, you know, and then feeling actually, no, I don't want to go back into training. I really like the work that I do. And then that being recognized by the employer and then the creation of, you know, when a promotion to a SAS as part of that. So that's a kind of another avenue into being a SAS doctor. I see. I see. And if some SAS doctors want to progress further in their career and want to be on the specialist registrar, how do they go about that? Yeah, so there is an equivalent pathway for, for SAS doctors to be on the specialist register and then apply to be, you know, to be a consultant if they so wish to. Um, and the pathway for, for those who aren't in training is called CESA in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, that is all about demonstrating equivalence to the curriculum within the specialty that they work within, that they are have the equivalent experience, the equivalent knowledge. They use the same curriculum as trainees would do to achieve what we know as CCT. And it is about collecting all of that evidence to assure that there is equivalence and that evidence can be is submitted to the GMC via their online platform. And then it is assessed by a Caesar assessor, two Caesar assessors from within the relevant college to ensure that they agree that the person who has applied for Caesar has, has indeed met all of the competencies, all of the curriculum objectives, and that they are equivalent and they are fit to be placed onto the specialist register. The only thing I would say is, is that the CESA pathway 
is often seen as being a lot more cumbersome than mm. the traditional training route. And I'd agree it, it is it is different because we don't have, although we might have access to a e-portfolio, the evidence has to be separately uploaded to the GMC and assessed in a different way. So it, it can be quite a challenging thing to complete. And I would say that if anyone's thinking of doing Caesar, to just make sure they've you know read up around it, they've got the support from the team that they're within the department, because it is going to be quite a you know a difficult process. So you mentioned portfolio. Is there a centralized portfolio that staff doctors in general have to keep, like the trainees, for example, have a Horace or NHFE portfolio? No, not that I'm aware of, but I think it would be very beneficial, particularly if that could link into the GMC and CESAR applications. That would be really, really helpful. But I'm not aware that there is a centralised portfolio. That said, many specialties do allow SAS access to the portfolio that their trainees use with the um, attached curriculum. And I say that from experience because, you know, I'm on the physician's e-portfolio as a SAS member. And I do use that to collect evidence because I am hoping to achieve CESAR. So I use that to um, send out workplace-based assessments to my colleagues and to kind of upload evidence I know that I'm going to have the the painful task of then transferring all of that across to the GMC when the time comes, when I know Mm -hmm. that I've got enough evidence. But it is something that um, I would encourage anybody who's thinking of doing CESAR um, in the future to start doing that, because what you are going to submit to the GMC is essentially a five-year portfolio of evidence, up to five years, that is, to support all of the curriculum domains. And if you decide today that you are keen to do CESAR um, and you've not collected any evidence for the last few years, you are really going to struggle. So it's something to start doing early on and then you have your evidence ready for you. And I think that that's a downfall that a lot of people who try and apply to Caesar fall into that trap is that they think about doing Caesar later on in their career, having having not really collected a lot of evidence in the prior few years, and then find that they're playing catch up and trying to gather as much evidence in a short space of time, which is really challenging when you've got a full time job as well. Mm, I could imagine. Just for curiosity, how long does the Caesar process take? I think it's difficult to put an exact figure on it. My understanding of how the pathway works is that once you feel that you've pretty much got all of your evidence, you can then open up on the GMC website your CISO application. And once you've opened that, you have a 12-month window to upload all that evidence. And with any time within that 12 months, if you're happy you've got everything there, then you can submit it. And it's at that point that you pay the fee and your application kind of closes down, gets submitted to the GMC to be assessed by a CESAR assessor. And there are certain deadlines to be met once the application's been received and then to get the final outcome. And the final outcome, 
um, hopefully will be that you have uh, satisfied the assessors, um, have achieved all the competencies and are placed on the specialist register. Or it might be that they suggest that there is extra evidence that you need to supply and will give you a, a time window to, to submit that evidence, which I believe is around 12 months or that they feel that actually you haven't demonstrated enough and the application is rejected. And, and there is, of course, an, an appeals process. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's, it's difficult to say. what you Essentially, what you're demonstrating is equivalence to a trainee. And most trainees will have a five-year training programme. So And the evidence that you can supply is also within a five-year window so I think as long as you have all of the evidence that you need and you can demonstrate that, then, you know, you're going up to five years, but you might well be able to supply enough evidence within, you know, two, three, four years. Oh, brilliant. No, it was very informative, Mike, uh, and I really appreciate it. I mean, to be honest, if, um, if I had you speaking to me like this, many years ago, I would have seriously considered the path option. And I hope, like you said, this podcast raises the awareness of yep. the option of SARS for junior doctors currently at, at any grade. If anybody who's listening to this podcast has any further questions about SARS doctors and would like to get in touch with Mike or anybody from the TNMC, just uh, hit us up on Twitter, uh, our Twitter account. If you search for RCPEINE trainees, on Twitter or uh, and RCPEINE trainees on Instagram, either send us a message, a direct message, or in fact, tag us in any of your posts, and we will be very happy to answer your question. And we might even get Mike to answer it directly, to be honest. Is that all right with you, Mike? Absolutely. I'd be very happy to answer any questions. Um, my passion is to raise the profile of SAS. And that is why I am the SAS representative on the TNMC. And I really want to ensure that the voice of SAS is heard. And whether that be answering questions uh, that people may have about a SAS career, but also, um, you know, raising any issues that are brought to my attention from SAS physicians, you know, please do get in touch because I am there to represent your voice. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure, Mike, to talk to you. And to everybody that's on, we hope to hear from you soon.